sur la HDU. Well, Rita Lawrence asked me just to, before church, you know, I'll just pick on her. She said, she looked at me and she said, what are you building at your house? <laughs> and she asked me that because if you drove by in the last week, uh, there were all manner of tools and lumber and sawhorses and all kinds of things out in the driveway so you don't make a mess in the garage. You know how it is. Uh, had to take a few days off of work to get some work done at the house. So we're working on a project. And, you know, when I start a project, uh, I always start with graph paper. And so that's what the clipboard is for today, just to look in, looking through. It starts with a really bad drawing and then some proposed dimensions and then a parts list. And then usually about halfway through that process, it all gets watered up and thrown in the trash and you start over. Um, but there's a dream for something that you want to build. And then there's a reality for the dream that may or may not match. And so it takes a while to get those things to come together where the dream turns into something that would actually be stable enough uh, to work as furniture or strong enough to work as part of holding a house or a bathroom or whatever it may be. And so that sketching process is really uh, important. And I spend a lot of time on that. I'll lay awake at night thinking which type of joint that I want to use in a certain intersection or uh, whether that half inch over here would be enough or whether I need three quarters or if three eighths would be best depending on what else is around it? So it's all these little things. And I know you're thinking you truly are crazy. Um, but but you all have your own version of that, right? Um, we, uh, we look for that perfect drawing. And then we consult experts as we're drawing. You know, we look and we see how other people have built things in the past. And we go, okay, well, there must be a reason why they used an arch to hold weight there. Or why they used this kind of a header or why cabinets are built a certain way to see ingrain in some places and not in others. And so we learn by watching people. We are looking for a mentor, someone who can apprentice us. So for you, it may be an in, a new interest or an old interest that you just want to get better at. Something that you've taken up recently or something you've been doing your whole life that you just want to get better at. By nature of repeating, you will get better at. Maybe riding a dirt bike or being a better friend, or building a retaining wall, or training for an athletic competition, writing letters, or baking bread, being a college student. These are all things that we would aspire to do and get better at in the process. And there's some sort of sketch and beginning in all of these. We're looking in these sketches for someone who will not lead us astray. Someone we can study and follow that won't waste our time, won't waste our energy, won't waste our materials, will make us better while teaching us to do the thing ourselves. Where is this more noticeable than in the practice of prayer? We are constantly in need of guides, living guides to teach us to pray. And I, I just have to confess, I told Amberly yesterday, she said, why, why do you have that look on your face? And I said, well, I was thinking again about the sermon that I've written this week. And she said, okay, well, what's the problem? I said, well, I have to preach on prayer. And she said, oh. <laughs> so, she said, one of those. I said, yeah, absolutely. Because it's like doing the thing that you feel like you're always bad at. So preaching on prayer is always a challenge for me. It's always a stretch. And it's one of the reasons that I try to preach through Scripture so I don't avoid the tough passages that don't just fit what I'm already thinking about. 
but prayer is tough for me. I've been actively trying to pray since I was about 20, and it's just not ever gotten any easier. It's Some things have become more fluid or, or dependable, but it's still a grind. It's still really hard. It's like, it's like running. It never gets easier per se, but you get, you know, you find a groove and you get better at it and then you wax and you wane and you know what this is like. Some of you have been praying for three times as long as I have and you've come up with encouragement and you face discouragement and just like all these other things that we want to learn how to do, prayer, we're always looking for a guide. We're looking for a mentor. And, you know, sometimes in prayer, just like in building something, the drawings don't look like I imagine them. And I wad up the paper and throw it away. Or I start building something in prayer, and it just doesn't work. It doesn't look right. It doesn't hold the weight. And I just knock it down and throw it aside. It can be so frustrating. Sometimes I make inaccurate cuts, or I misread the wood grain. I have to start over. Very often in prayer, we experience similar frustrations. We say together, it's so difficult to focus my attention, I get easily distracted. Or I struggle to make the time to pray. Or I get frustrated at things in the world that don't make sense. And I just throw up my hands. And then sometimes we wonder if prayer really matters anyways. I mean, if God is sovereign and God is all-powerful, and I mean, does he really need my prayers? Or what does prayer have to do with? Why do I bother praying? Why is it so important? I don't get it. But like many times in Scripture, we, thank goodness, find companions in our discouragement, in our frustration, and also in our desire to hold on, to learn, to maintain faith in the midst of these struggles. You know, the disciples were truly like us. Ordinary people, they grew up praying. They grew up praying Jewish prayers that they learned at their mother's knee. They knew that prayer was important. And they knew after spending time with Jesus that they had a lot to learn. So to their credit and to ours when we follow suit, they asked for help. Lord, teach us to pray, just like John taught his disciples to pray. So the story starts that Jesus was praying in a certain place, just like the story before when Jesus is at Mary and Martha's house, and it said Jesus was in a certain village. Well, now he's in a certain place, and the place is not so important as what he's doing, and he's simply praying. This was not uncommon for Jesus, right? He's wandered off, he's gone to a place, and he's prayed. And the disciples see him come and go and leave and return, and they've finally seen enough. You know, they've finally been drawn in. It's like you watch the master long enough and you finally go, okay, I've got just enough encouragement. I'm going to ask a question today. I don't know if I'll get there, but I want to, I want to do this. And I know if I'm going to do this, it must involve prayer, Jesus, because you pray all the time. So they asked him, Lord, just could you teach us to pray? We know everybody can recognize John's disciples by how they pray. But what about us? How are people going to recognize us? How do we pray? And Jesus, it's like there's no pause, there's no discussion, there's no Jesus saying, well, you know, it's pretty tough. Are you sure you guys are ready? He just says, okay, well, now when you pray, here's what you say. Like, well, that's pretty direct. That's pretty blunt. That ought to really make us happy in West Texas. It seems pretty simple. 
when you pray, say this. And the sentence structure there implies repetition. It's something that we're going to do over and over again. When you pray, say it like this. And so then, as Luann read for us, Luke gives his version of what we know as the Lord's Prayer. And there were other versions of this circulating in the first and second centuries as the church was practicing. The most common one that we practice as a church that we say together is the one found in Matthew, which is a little different, but the same core. It has seven petitions instead of five, but it's really the same prayer. And Luke gives us this form for some reason. And it's helpful just to look at it with a little different light. This is one of those things you can carry around in a note card in your pocket. It's really simple. And just say, okay, I can say that. I can do that. And all the other things that are discouraging, heck, I can say this. It gives me a lot of hope, a lot of confidence. When you pray, say this. Jesus answers with a direct answer, and then he follows that up with a parable. Uh, this week we're going to talk about the direct answer. Next week we're going to talk about the parable. Uh, this week we're going to talk about what we pray. And next week we're going to talk about why we pray. When you pray, say, Father. Hallowed be thy name. Hallowed be your name. In the previous chapter, Jesus told his disciples that all things have been handed over to me by my Father, and no one knows who the Son is except the Father, or who the Father is except the Son, and anyone whom the Son chooses to reveal him. We learn that Jesus is the only one that can really reveal to human beings who the Father is in this relational sort of way. And so Jesus is just following up on that promise. He's saying, hey, you guys are in the mix. I am the one that can reveal the Father, and I'm telling you when you pray, you say it like this. Father, hallowed be your name. Now, it's not unfamiliar in Jewish prayers to use the word Father. It's not unfamiliar to find it in the Old Testament where the whole nation of Israel, where all of God's people are to refer to God as a Father. But it's a little more strange for a prayer that is a daily personal go-to prayer to see it begin by addressing God, not as Almighty God, not as the one who has been from all time and everlasting and ages and ages and da-da-da, but just Father, one word. As John's disciples were known for their way of praying, Jesus' followers would come to be known for their, for our way of praying. And a fundamental distinctive beginning of that prayer begins with using family language to address God. It's very surprising. It's very startling. Now, when you think father, don't think male nor female. Right? God is not male or female. God is spirit. Uh, the disciples at a front row seat as Jesus revealed to them how exactly God is father to us. And we have that same front row seat as we read this on the pages of Scripture. Father. Jesus is making a sharp contrast to human fathers in this whole section of Luke. Whom we know in the ancient Near East were central figures. They were at the center of familial and public life. The whole world revolved around the ecosystem of fathers. We know that. And Jesus is making a critique. He's bringing with this text a contrast. No earthly father is addressed or known this way. No earthly father is properly addressed with, hallowed be thy name. Imagine your kids, if you went home and you were eating lunch and they all said, hello, father, hallowed be thy name. 
I mean, it would just be strange, right? It would be, it would be inappropriate. We, would, we fathers would say, oh, gosh, gosh, don't say that about me. Don't put me in that camp. There's nothing holy about my name. My name's Ryan. <laughs> you know, it's real basic. No human father has this said to them. We don't ask our kids to talk to us this way. Now, there are some of us that, you know, it's all the jokes about, you can call me. It's like the old John Wayne thing. You know, you can call me this, you can call me this. But if you ever call me this again, <laughs> we're going to finish the fight. Um, sorry, that was an un, un, unplanned Big Jake reference there. But, um, but we're not addressed, you know, hallowed be your name, Dad. God is the only one in that camp. Jesus is correcting the popular understanding of fathers by calling attention to a perfect, all-powerful God who invites us to call us by, invites us to call him by a familiar yet holy name. Father. Now, again, we're not to think male, uh, head of the household, progenitor, but rather adoption, relationship, redemption, where we all begin with a baptismal birth into a big family. We all start in the same place. We all come through the waters of baptism and we become part of God's family. We're adopted. We're brought in. And even our relationships and our own families are reconstructed. And we live in this family now whose only head is God, our Father. The prayer goes on, hallowed be your name. To hallow something or for something to be hallowed is just kind of like saying to make it holy or <clears throat> sanctified. And it's a passive a recognizing that God is the one who's going to have to do this action. And, you know, the reason that we have to pray this part of the prayer, the reason that God needs to hallow his name or sanctify his name is because we have unhallowed it. Right. We've made a mess of it, not by saying, you know. Certain words that would take God's name in vain, but we've unhallowed God's name by our actions. I have unhallowed God's name and how I treat other people. We have unhallowed God's name with destruction and praying on people. All the stuff that we do as people, we have in our culture, in our world, we have unhallowed the name of God. And so part of our daily prayer is God, hallow your name, right? sanctify your name, bring us back to you. Saying this line, hallowed be your name, is like saying, I will place my hand, my life in your hands. And I'll allow my life to be shaped in your image. As your adopted daughter or your adopted son, I will grow to reflect your character in a world that needs to know you. It's, it's, it's like signing your name on the dotted line. If we pray, hallowed be your name, we're willing to be part of the hallowing process. It's a beautiful prayer of access. The prayer goes on. Your kingdom come, right? Just like Matthew's version. Uh, your kingdom come. Uh, we know that God's kingdom is already coming, that God's kingdom is already here, uh, alive and active among us just because we've gathered in his name and God is present to us and we see God's work in the world around us. And we say over there, oh, we see God's kingdom at work over there with that family. We see God's work over here with that school teacher. And we see God's work over here uh, with this banker and what he's doing. And we, we see God working everywhere. God's kingdom and we also know that to pray for God's kingdom means there are places that God's kingdom does not seem to have come yet. 
And we have the hope that one day will come. And so we're just asking for that. We're saying, God, send your kingdom. And send it in more places. Help us to see it. And then one day, make us ready for when you will return in all of your splendor and glory. And your kingdom will once and for all finally come. Give us each day our daily bread. We know this. There's a lot of argument about it's a really uncommon kind of sentence structure, but there's a lot of fuss about what is this? Is this actual bread or is this spiritual bread or what is it? Well, there's a lot of different thoughts and most people kind of work with both. But the main thing is we're, we're depending on God for our basic needs. We're asking God to provide for us for the things that we need socially, emotionally, the things that we need on our table, the things that we need in our hearts and our lives, basic provision. And we're asking, I love this prayer because it's kind of a, it's a working prayer. It's a prayer that we, while our hands are busy, Lord, provide for us. Give us strength in our hands and strength to work. Give us the heart to continue in the things that you've called us to do. Provide for us. Thank you for allowing us to participate in our own daily sustenance. And forgive us our sins as we forgive everyone who is indebted to us. Right? Forgiveness of sins and debts is just praying that we would be free from all liabilities that we can imagine. Whatever things might weigh us down, there sometimes can be disease or can be demonic oppression. It can be just plain old sin, things that we have done, lines that we have crossed, destruction that we have brought in our own lives and the lives around us. And we're just asking for forgiveness. We're asking for freedom that we can go on and live as free people. For we ourselves forgive everyone who is indebted to us. Now it's not quid pro quo, right? It's not, well, God's going to forgive us if we forgive others. Uh, but Jesus is drawing a line here. He's saying there is a uh, an interwovenness to our forgiveness of others and God's forgiveness of us. Our requests for divine forgiveness and our practice of extending forgiveness are intertwined. They're they're together. And as we forgive, we imitate our Father's character. That's part of the hallowing of the name is passing on forgiveness to those that are indebted to us. And, you know, this really blows up the patronage system of the day because in that day, I mean, we still see it a little bit, but in that day it really was. It was like it all functioned on someone being in debt to someone else. I do something for you, and then you owe me one. Right, So I can carry that around like a card, whatever I need. Hey, by the way, you owe me one, and you can do the same to me. Uh, you do something for me, so now I owe you one. And we live constantly in this indebtedness to one another. It's the, you know, it's the full outplay of, you know, I'll scratch your back and you scratch mine, and we'll kind of keep this thing going. Somebody always owes somebody. And Jesus blows this up and basically says, look, we're to give and forgive without expecting anything in return. We don't love people so that they can love us back. We love people because God has loved us. So we offer incredible grace and gifts, expecting nothing in return. Again, it just blows the whole system up. And finally, lead us not into temptation. Or lead us not into the test. Now, often in Scripture, uh, when we see the word test, it, it's kind of like an intentional test that God would give us. 
i.e., uh, God tested Abraham in Genesis 22. But there's a purpose to the test. God is giving us a test so that he can strengthen us through the test. We see this in the Old Testament. We see it in places in the New Testament. But in Luke's gospel, the word test is never a positive thing. It's never something that God gives. So it's very different. So the prayer, deliver us from the test, is like saying, hey, keep us away from those dang tests. Right, we've got enough tests as it is. Like spare us some of the cotton-picking tests because they're wearing us out. We know that the Christian life is hard, and we know that we face things that part of it's going to be hard. But Lord, just give us some reprieve. It's like stuff that's a detriment to our faith, the things that deteriorate our faith, that whittle away at our trust in God. These are tests, the kind of tests that we don't need any more of. And so we're praying for deliverance from all that we've lost to tests that have harmed our faith. This is where we confess our need for divine care, for divine guidance. This one's, this part's hard for me. None of us is smart enough or strong enough to escape the real tests that we face as disciples. That one irritates me because I want to be strong enough. I want to be smart enough to escape all the tests. And at the end of the day, and at the beginning of the day, I need God's divine care. We need God's divine guidance to make it through the things that would seek to deteriorate our faith. We need deliverance from tests that we have fallen into in our faith. The prayer is something like, keep us from the things that destroy and damage our faith. Would you pray that with me this week? As we pray the simple thing that we know is the Lord's Prayer, keep us from the things that destroy or damage our faith. Would you join me in that prayer? I think it takes a village to get there. And our faith, you know, is not fragile. It's unbelievably strong. But it has been whittled away and things eroded. And we're constantly needing to pray, keep us from the things that would destroy our faith. Because not only do we need faith to live and thrive and survive, but the world needs our faith too. And it's hard. And those of you that have been practicing this faith a while, you can tell us it's always been hard. It's always going to be hard. Thanks be to God. We have the church. We have those who have gone before us. And we have God offering his divine care as a heavenly father. Amen.